You may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 19. If, you, um, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, maybe um, just new to Christianity, we've printed the text for you in your worship guide. Um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, my, uh, my youngest daughter often says on Sundays, Dad, that was a great sermon, uh, but it was a little too long. And I'll say, thank you. Uh, I appreciate that. What's it about? She's like, I have no idea. Um, So, uh, baby, it's going to be a long one today. Revelation chapter 19, um, starting at verse 11. This is God's word. I'm going to read through verse 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God, and the armies of heaven Arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is God's word. Would you join with me as we ask the King of kings and Lord of lords to bless his word preached. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, give us insights. Help us to see clearly the gospel of your grace towards sinners. We need it. All of us have come here in desperate need. Some of us more aware of your our need for your grace than others. None of us without need of grace lavish, power tremendous that can only come from your throne. And so we pray, come with your sword and change us. We pray this in the name of the Savior. Amen. We all walk around with this general sense, especially lately. And by lately, I just don't mean the last couple of years, but lately, like an extended period of time, that there's just this sense that there's got to be something going on that we just can't put our finger on. You feel it, don't you, right? There's just this general sense of things just aren't right. Maybe it's your kid's health. Maybe it's your own health. And our approach to it is, if I can just uncover the problem... If I can figure out what the secret is, the secret problem, then I can fix it. So you scour the internet for diet suggestions. Maybe I can find just the right foods to avoid, the right oils to use, the right way to eat, so that everything will be okay. I can't quite put my finger on it. I know there's a secret threat looking around politics. If I can just uncover the conspiracy that's against us, something's out to 
get us and if I can uncover the secret, well then, then I can finally feel safe, at rest, and secure. My friends were anxious. And we can't either find all of the threats or defend ourselves against all of them. And the irony to this approach is the more that we try, the more anxious we become. And Revelation is written for people like us. It's written to give us a vision that will produce confidence, joy, and security. That's what it is. That's the goal. Confidence, joy, security. And we've said repeatedly in our study of Revelation that Revelation isn't so much about the history of the end of the world as it is about the history of the world since the coming of Christ. The history of God's redemptive purposes that have been at work in the world since Jesus came onto the scene. And so Revelation reads less like a straight line of chronology and has read more like waves crashing on the shore, one vision after another vision after another vision, slightly different but feeling the same over and over again. And so when we get to these last two or three or four chapters of the book of Revelation, this is what we will be at. It's what we just sang, actually. As, as we were singing, I was, I was struck by this. This is, this is really the theme of the book of Revelation, right? Though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world, but the battle is not done. Jesus, who died, shall be satisfied when earth and heaven are one. That's the flow. God preparing a place for his people, bringing his plan of redemption that was begun in Christ to its final and complete culmination. That flow is going to be important for understanding Revelation 19 and 20. God preparing a place. God the creator of all things. He's taking creation to its ultimate conclusion. The flow of history isn't just moving forward because Jesus is on his throne. It's moving upward. God's going to finish with an ultimate climax what he had begun in the work of Jesus Christ. That is good news. There's no secret that you have to uncover to be safe. The secret is clearly revealed by God in Jesus Christ. Now, if you've ever worked through Revelation 19 and 20, it was probably towards the end of trying to figure out in what order the future events are going to happen. What comes first? The millennial reign of Jesus, those thousand years, and then Jesus comes back, Jesus comes back, the millennium happens. And if you're not a Christian, you're probably thinking at this point as we begin to work through this, this is as kooky as I pictured Christianity to be. Well, here's our main point. Whenever things get confusing, just back up and remember the entirety of the story of the book of Revelation is part of the entire story of the Bible. Jesus has won. Jesus will win. And he's going to bring his people with him. That's what we've said over and over, that there's a deep conflict in the world that Jesus wins through judgment to bring his people into a new creation. He won at the cross 
He's winning now, and he's going to win by bringing his people into his new creation. He cannot be stopped. There in these last chapters, many, especially in 19 and 20, this is where interpretations of the book of Revelation have diverged wildly. And so let me suggest this, that what we are seeing in these chapters is the entire course of the ministry of Jesus. Not just his second coming, but his first coming, his present ministry as he reigns over all things, and then his second coming. And so as we enter into this, let me give us three interpretive principles why I think this is the the way we're, at least we're going to, I could be wrong. Um, I've been wrong about many things, but let me give us, you figure it out at the end. Test me against God's word. So let me give us three interpretive principles why I think that 19 and 20 are about the first coming, the current reign, and then the second coming. First interpretive principle, we've seen this over and over again. Revelation is about repetition. Repetition, like waves crashing on the shore over and over again. In fact, these chapters, 19 and 20, repeat the vision that we began this section in, starting back in 12, 13, and 14. Repetition. Second, Revelation isn't primarily about chronology, but about depictions. John said at the beginning, God said through John, I'm going to give you symbols that symbolize other things. And so it reads less like a newspaper and more like an artist's sketch. God's pulling back the curtain with an intention of stirring our imagination so his people could see the world differently, to reinterpret what's going on in our own lives on a daily basis, to see more clearly from God's perspective rather than bottom up where we get so disoriented, and then to see what God's doing in the world so that we can more properly interpret the events around us. Third, so repetition not primarily about chronology, but an artist's sketch. Third, there is a clear structure to these passages. And the clear structure is seven visions. So if you've got your pen, I want you to take it out and mark the beginning of these seven verses. And notice the repetition of, I saw. This is going to give us our structure. Verse 11, then I saw. That's the first vision. Second vision, verse 17, then I saw. Third vision, verse 19, and I saw. Verse 20, chapter 20, verse 1, then I saw. Fifth vision, chapter 20, verse 11, then I saw. A sixth vision, and then chapter 21, verse 1, then I saw. Seventh vision. Seven visions, just like we've seen previously. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Now, seven visions. Repetition, repetition. Like waves crashing on the shore. And in each of these previous seven visions, the first five depict what's going on in the world currently, Presently, the sixth vision gives us a, a glimpse into what's going on presently in heaven. And then the seventh vision gives us a vision of the future where God is taking the world. 
This is what Paul or John had seen in Revelation 1.19 when he's told to write these visions down. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen in the world, those that are, those that are the current reality and those that are take place after this. That's our interpretive grid, right? Those, that's where we're going now, or that's, that's our interpretive grid. Now here's where we're going, these seven visions. The great triumph of Jesus, if you're taking notes, the great triumph of Jesus. Two, the great rage and reckoning of Satan. And then third, the great shalom or peace or rest. Everything put right of God's new world. So, the great triumph of Jesus. We start in verse 11 of chapter 19. Jesus shows up on the scene. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His, his eyes are like a flame of fire. He's reigning with diadems on his head. And Jesus has shown up with battle. He's got armies at his disposal in verse 14. He's here to do battle. And again, it's a direct parallel to chapter 12. But here from a different vantage point. See, in chapter 12, the focus of the camera is on the ferocity of the dragon as Jesus shows up on the scene as a little child. And the dragon there we see as he comes in relief is there to devour, but he can't. And Jesus sets up his kingdom. And here in verse 19, the focus on the camera is on the one who came as the little baby in chapter 12. In other words, in chapter 12, the focus is on the humanity of Jesus as he took on flesh. But now in chapter 19, the focus is on him as the son of God who is clothed in the flesh of a little baby, but was really God's conquering warrior. And so he shows up and he's to do battle. He's going to put all of God's enemies right. You get to see him really as he is. Now God has shown up to do battle. And he's going to judge. And his judgment's going to be vicious. No one will be able to stand before this king. Second vision, verse 17. The angel announces it. I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. He's gathering the angels, announcing the king has shown up, and he's here to do battle. No one could stand with him, and so he's calling the vultures to come in. And then, third vision, verse 19, with this announcement. The beast, you'll remember from previous chapters, starting with, verse, with chapter 12, the beast is representative of the nations of the world. And so he, he reiterates the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gather to make war against the one who's come. And you see what this has happened. 
the kings of the earth, the announcements come instead of bending their knee, Lord, have mercy on us, which he would have given. Instead, the nations of the world rally, the kingdoms of this earth rally against God's king. And you see, that is exactly what happened when Pilate, Herod, and the Roman soldiers used their ruling authority to crucify the king of kings and lord of lords. They didn't bend their knee to Jesus. They hung him on a cross and rallied against him, spitting and mocking in his face. But God, oh, if those are not the best words of the heart of the gospel, but God, who through the death of his son defeated sin, Satan, and death, through death comes life, his kingdom triumphs because This is the upside down nature of God's kingdom as a grain of seed is sown into the ground. It brings forth fruit. And so Jesus won by sacrificing himself for our sins. And so the king in the first vision is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Because this is how King Jesus wins. He wins by taking our place on the cross. By dying the death we deserve to die. By absorbing the wrath. His own wrath against our sin. Because he loved. He loved his people. And he won. Now. Fourth vision. We're going to go back to the fourth vision. I want you to hold that intention right now. We're kind of building forward. We've got the. Arrival of Jesus on the scene, the announcement of judgment, the nations of the world rallying against him, him defeating them. The fifth vision, chapter 20, verse 4. We're going to skip over those first three verses, chapter 20, verse 4. We're going to come back to those. The fifth vision. In this vision is a vision of the present reign of Jesus now. In other words, I take the millennium here, or the thousand years, as representing the present reign of Christ. Now. You might wonder, children, what is, what is Jesus doing right now? Is he, is he upstairs just twiddling his thumbs, waiting for his father to send him back? He's got the day off, so he's relaxing on his couch watching Netflix waiting for the Father to send him back to bring new heavens and new earth. No, he's king of kings and lord of lords. He's reigning now. When he sends his disciples out, before he goes up to heaven, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He's holding all things together in Colossians 1. He's the one who makes the food grow in the field. He's the one who makes the sun rise in the morning. He's the one who's making his kingdom advance. The little birds cracking from their eggs are because he is king and commands it to be so. Now remember this. The number a thousand in Revelation has been used to symbolize something really big. The people of God can't be numbered. They're too vast to be numbered. And so how do we symbolize them? Twelve by twelve by A thousand. And so let me suggest that these thousand years of of the reign of Jesus, he's seated, I saw, verse 4, I saw thrones, and seated on them 
those who are given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of the hen beheaded for the testimony of Jesus who had not worshipped. And the reigning came to life and reigned, verse 4, with Christ for a thousand years. And so remember this framework all the way back from Paul in Ephesians 2. By grace you've been saved. No one makes it into Jesus' kingdom, enjoys his reign by working really hard, pulling your bootstraps, correcting your wrongs, making all things right. No one does, gets it. It's by grace you've been saved. How does that work itself out? By grace you've been saved. It's God's work. And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is a present reality. So that in the coming ages he might show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. And again, you see the upside down nature of Jesus' kingdom. All that is wrong with us makes it into his kingdom. He only takes the weak. He only takes those who have sinned against him. He only takes those who are powerless in the world. And notice what he says. You've seated with him in the heavenly places. That's what's most true about you. Not the threats that are raging against you, whether it's in health or career, or children, that's not what's most true if you're in Christ. What's most true is you're reigning with Him, and you're seated with Him, and He is over all things, and He is on your side. And notice the, the upside-down nature of this. Those that are reigning with Christ presently are the ones, verse 4, middle part, who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God. You see what Rome was looking at, at the Christian, at Jesus' people at this time. And they're saying, look, they're so powerless, we can do anything to them. No one will stop us. No one cares about that minuscule group of people without no power or influence in the world. No one can stop us. But Jesus, because they had entrusted themselves to him, as Rome, the reigning power, cuts off their head, the reality is they're reigning with Jesus. And why are they reigning with him? Because he brought them to life before they went to their death. Verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who share in the first resurrection over the second death. Such the second death has no power. And they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. And there's, a, there's a bit of a back and forth here between first death and second death. And a, my suggestion here is that the first resurrection is the reference to the moment when God gives new life to a person. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He raises someone from the dead to spiritual life. He gives a new heart to dry, dead bones. He puts his spirit in them, and they come alive. A Christian isn't a good person. A Christian is a ruined person who's been made new by the power of Jesus. 
And so when the dragon and the beast kill off a Christian and rage against God in 12 and onward, it only grants them victory because Jesus has already made them alive with him. Colossians 2.12 You have been buried with Christ and you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And now that you reign with him, you are alive forevermore. And because Jesus will not lose any battle for those he's raised to new life, he will not lose any that he has raised to new life. You begin to just feel the anxiety wash away with that truth. You feel the need to defend yourself begin to diminish a little bit, at least with that vision. I'm seated with Christ. He's reigning. I'm reigning with him. He's raised me to new life. Death will have no power over me. That's, there, is, there is nothing more true than that. Not your circumstances, but that reality. As God sees you and has made you, if you're in Christ, reigning, raised to new life, and you will gain your victory through the powerful working of God. Now, there's one more piece. I say we're going to go back to the fourth vision because there's something that happens in the fourth vision and the fifth vision that we need to get back to. In verse 1 of chapter 20, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for those thousand years. Now, picture this as he's arrested him, and he's put him under house arrest. But he's put him under house arrest. He's arrested him and put him under house arrest towards a particular end, verse 3 so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended. Now, there's been a theme that we've skipped over. It's been developing ever since chapter 19, verse 11. And that is this. In this present world, the way that Jesus is gaining victory is by his word. Chapter 19, verse 13. The one who shows up on the scene is called the Word of God. Chapter 19, verse 15. He strikes down the nations. He wins victory with a sword that's coming out of his mouth. He's speaking, and by his word, he wins all battles. Chapter 19, verse 20. The kingdom of this world has been making war on Jesus, and they are mimicking his ways with a false prophet that's used to deceive the people. So now we get to chapter 20, verse 1, and Satan is bound, he's put under house arrest, so that he can no longer deceive the nations anymore, so that the gospel of Jesus can go out into the world with tremendous power and great impact. The good news, that Jesus saves sinners. That God is redeeming what sin has broken. That news was for a long time confined to one little nation. 
in one insignificant corner of the world that was occupied by another empire and kept under their thumb as a puppet country. But you, if you are in Christ, have heard the gospel. Not because you are in ancient Jerusalem, but because Jesus has put under house arrest the deceiver and his gospel is going forward into all the nations of the world. And no one can stop it. 20 years ago, it was estimated that there were five to 10,000 Christians in Iran. Just a small, insignificant number. Since then, over the last 20 years, the oppression of the church in Iran has only grown. And the gospel is born a harvest. So that today, it is estimated that there are 800,000 to a million whose eyes have been opened to the tremendous grace of Jesus in Iran. That is happening in China, in Indonesia, in the United States, in Russia, all across the world. The gospel has gone out because God had promised in Psalm 2... Of his son, ask me and I'll give the nations as an inheritance for you. And so Satan was bound so that he could no longer deceive the nations anymore. And the gospel has gone out and you're the harvest. The church has grown to staggering numbers across the ages. And no one can stop the onward march of Jesus as he speaks with power. A sword coming out of his mouth having bound the evil one, and no one, no one can stop the gospel. The gates of hell will not prevail as Jesus plunders Satan's kingdom. Amen? But don't get too triumphalistic yet. At least not yet. Because at the end, we find this. Verse 7, this is the end of verse 3. We find that the one who's been put under house arrest will be released for a little while. And then in verse 7 of chapter 20, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from prison and will come out to deceive the nations. He's been held back, but his rage has only increased. He's like a hungry lion. He's been put into a cage. He's gotten angry, he's gotten hungry, and when he let out, gets let go, you better get out of the way. You need to hear this as a warning. There's going to be a future and great deception. Things will get worse before they will get better. Jesus promises this right before he goes to the cross. When he's standing on the Mount of Olives preparing his disciples, a great deception will come. Things are going to get worse. He will deceive the nations. And notice what happens. Verse 8, chapter 20. He comes out, he deceives the nations, and a vast army, it's four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog is from a reference back to the nations in in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, if you want to go there. And he's gathered them for battle, and it's a vast army. I mean, it's four corners of the earth, it's everywhere, sand more than the sea. Don't expect the world to enjoy the church. Again, it it takes the power of Jesus to make 
someone, a follower of Jesus. Don't expect the world to enjoy the church. Our brief blip of favor with the kingdom of this world is just a blip on the stage of world history. If the church tries to keep favor with the world, it will have to do so by compromising with the King of kings and Lord of lords. And when Satan is allowed out of his house arrest at the end, it is to deceive again, and the army will be so great that it will cover the world like the sand covers the sea. As one commentator put it, at the end when the dragon is released to pull together his evil conspiracy, it will seem as if all is lost. The witness slain, the godless world celebrating, the camp of the saints surrounded by a countless army that fills the breadth of the earth. But even then, in that dire moment, the church's divine protector will defend and vindicate his own. Look at the middle of verse 9. It's so anticlimactic. As we have seen so many times, verse 9, middle, the arm, you can just picture this vast army coming against Jesus and his church and his people. A broad plain surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But, again, these are the words that are at the heart of the gospel every single time. But, fire comes down from heaven, they're consumed. It's over. Like that. It's not, these are not equal forces. God's purposes cannot be stopped. Jesus' people cannot be tackled. Because though the wrong seems off the so strong, God is the ruler yet. And then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, verse 10. And they'll be tormented day and night. Jesus wins. He wins. Because he's God in the flesh, he wins. Because his blood was shed in victory, he wins. Because he's raised from the dead, he wins. And nothing can stop him. His kingdom's going to march onward, no matter what the evil one does. But what about the people? What about the people? The dragon's been defeated in stages. He's put under house arrest at the cross and thrown into the lake of fire at the end. But my friends, we've willfully followed the ways of the dragon. All of us, every single one of us in this room. He didn't force the people to follow his rebellion against God. It didn't take much to gather this army together. He just simply, and we saw this in our previous, when Jeff handled so well the pleasures of Babylon, we simply just appealed to our pleasures, our desire for riches, our desire for power doesn't take much. He just simply holds it out and he says, you can have all this. And we willfully join his ploy in the heart of our hearts. Not God, but me. I want to build the world around me. Not your way, God, but mine. Not your kingdom, but mine. You've provided for me all the way. I'm going to take it and use it for my own consumption. And so then all the people stand before the throne of King Jesus in verse 11. Great white throne. He's the victorious king. He sits down on his throne and he says, it's time for judgment. A reckoning is going to happen. And there is one question. Whose side did you choose? And notice this. There's no case made by you. No words spoken by you. You will have no defense for the deeds that you have done, that we have done, I have done. 
have been recorded by the king who sees all things and knows all things. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and hell gave up the dead who were in it. All the dead in the graves raised, all those who are alive, seated before Jesus. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And again, what we have done is what we've wanted to do. Unless we lose all hope, for all our works condemn us. All of them. None of our hands are clean. None of our hearts are pure. Lest we lose all hope that our works condemn us. Verse 12, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And those whose name are written there are safe. Because... They've been covered by the blood of Jesus. Revelation chapter 3, we heard this before. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. I'll never blot them out of the name, out of my book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and the angels. Have you found yourself so broken and hopeless that you have said, Jesus, I'm yours? And he says, let me write that down in my book of life. You can either write your own story or you can adopt the story of Jesus. But if you adopt the story of Jesus, he will write your name in his book. And this will ring true about you. I will never blot you out of my book. And I'll confess your name before my Father and the angels. And that then takes us to our last vision. Because now that the world is cleansed from evil, now that the judgment has come, God brings a new heaven and new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away in the sea. All that's threatening and chaotic, dangerous in this world. The sea, no more. And I saw a holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And because Jesus has won, he is winning, will not be defeated. And he will bring his victory his people, into his victory. Those are the things that are, have been, that are, and that will be. Let's pray. Lord, 
There is no better news to soothe our anxious souls than Christ is alive forevermore. And we with him, and no one, not the kingdoms of this world, the threats to our health, the fears that we feed, the evil one who is railing against us, not our own sin or even death, can undo what the king has done. And so as we come to your table, we wait for this day. But we wait with hope that you will finish what you began. So take these ordinary elements. And it is our journey as pilgrims. Sustain us until we make it home. For we pray this in the name of the Savior. Amen.